Welcome back to the TDJX Podcast. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Bill Hybels, the founding and senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. Willow Creek is one of the most well-attended churches in North America, with an average attendance of nearly 24,000 as of 2011. This conversation between these two was originally recorded at Dr. Heibel's 2016 Global Leadership Summit, an annual training event that aims to transform Christian leaders around the world with an injection of vision, skill development, and inspiration. Together, they hit a range of topics and address Bishop's philosophy on leadership. Bishop also leans in on some of the hard truths of leadership, how he balances his life and reconciles the dropping of balls. And lastly, he speaks very openly about racial reconciliation within the church and the community. This is a fascinating conversation, so without further ado, let's jump right in. I'm so glad that you agreed to do this interview, Bishop Jakes. We've been friends for 15 years or so, and you've influenced me from afar many, many times. Vice versa. And Thank uh, you for you've had me. the opportunity to speak to our summit crowd on yes. a couple other occasions. And These are very interesting days that we're living in, and Time Magazine called you the greatest preacher in the United States right now. Most of our audience would mainly know you probably from your preaching because Mm -hmm. you're the pastor of a great church in Texas. Most of our audience probably wouldn't know that your leadership has branched out significantly in the last decade. So more than just leading a church, which is a big job, (laughs) your leadership now has extended to the publishing industry, record producing, the making of major motion pictures, international investment, philanthropy. And if that weren't enough, today we're sitting in Hollywood on the set of yet another new venture, the launch of a nationwide daily TV talk show that will launch soon. And so from a leadership perspective... This just fills my mind with all kinds of questions. Okay. So I would like to dive in right away. Conventional leadership wisdom says that leaders should focus. They should find one thing that they're good at, put the blinders on, stay focused on it, never get distracted. Apparently, you don't buy conventional leadership (laughs) wisdom because you seem to have a lot going on. Well, I think what gets us into trouble is that we get trapped by titles. Oh, and somebody describes and say that you're a pastor or you're a baker or you're an engineer, and we buy into how they describe us and stop seeking. We allow people to put a period and define us by how they met us, where I believe God put a comma. And it has been my life's pursuit to see how much was in me. Uh-huh. God put a seed down in all of us, and he gave us time to produce what was in the seed. The notion that there's only one tree in the seed is really a myth. There may be a force if you give it enough time. And so if you nurture what's in you and don't limit yourself by job descriptions, titles, or people's expectations, you can evolve out of one seed into a tree, and out of that tree comes a forest. And I think the trick to being able to do multiple functional occupations or interests is to find the common thing. Whether I wrote books or did movies or did plays or preached on Sunday morning or the talk show or anything that I aspired to do, I found the common denominator is that I'm called to communicate. Uh And once you find the common denominator, its manifestation can be in print, it can be in films, it can be in television, it can be in pulpits, it can be in motivational, but the one thing that connects it all is that he opened my mouth to speak. And once you find that common denominator, you lead from the position of what do you have in common with all of those diverse manifestations? 
and that way you can control it if you can understand its origin. You said in a recent book called Destiny, don't leave the planet having missed the great opportunities God has for you. Rip off the lid of your abilities, tear open your box of talents, use every single gift God has given you. Is that sort of what you were driving at here? Absolutely the same thing. I think that we are often underutilized and the source of our frustration and what we think is burnout is really the frustration of not being challenged. If you're not doing anything that scares you, if you're not doing anything that makes you pray a little bit more, if you're not challenged in such a way that you're not sure of yourself, you've outgrown yourself. If every day's challenge is so predictable that it requires nothing of you beyond what you did yesterday, you're not growing. We have become shut up in a life that is beneath what God put inside of us and we're frustrated, we don't even know why. We need to be challenged every day. So you also said in that same book, Destiny, that you can't go through the door of destiny without passing through the hallway of haters. Tell us more about that. I think they're a symptom that you're on the right track. (laughs) Yeah, they're symptomatic, but if you can't endure the symptoms, then you can't have the success. But what really is amazing is, it's the things that you learn along the way that make you who you are. And part of those classes are taught to you by your haters. And you have to appreciate that. I mean, Jesus had them. Everybody had them. And the haters are are just an instrument, an attempt to distract you, and sometimes to educate you, sometimes to point out deficiencies in you because they're not always wrong. Yeah. So you have to do like my mother taught us with eating fish. You have to eat the meat and throw away the bones. But to respond to them and to miss your mark because you, in a misguided moment, think that success is changing their minds. You enter into a debate with them, trying to convince them as if you needed them to endorse you to do what God had called you to do. And God didn't call you to change their mind. He called you to set your face as flint and keep moving forward. And haters are the seducers that say, you're not there because I don't like you. And you have to resist that in order to pass the test to enter into the realm of greatness to which God has called you. So you started writing books, and then you went into the producing of records and the building of a record label. And then you moved more recently into the making of major motion pictures Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, other places around the world. Why did you get into movie making? Well, you know, Jesus taught people through parables. And I think that if we're going to affect the world, we have to minister through stories that they can relate to. The art of great storytelling is to allow people to see themselves without assaulting them with the truth they see. And so this is a great vehicle through which we can do that. And the other thing that you have to remember, there are more people in the theater on Friday night than there are in the pews on Sunday morning. If you're going to affect the culture, you have to escape the walls of our sanctuary. We keep telling people to come to church, but the Great Commission wasn't about coming, it was about us going. Going into all the world and into all the world systems and the arts and entertainment is one of the vehicles that takes us into the area where we can affect the world. You're still pastoring, yeah. you're still writing books, you're still doing the music stuff. They haven't stuff. fired me yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you know, you're into these major motion pictures, some of which have done incredibly well, the, yes. the last couple in particular. And just a, a leadership question again, how far is your head really in that game? 
throughout all of my organizations, my for-profits and not-for-profit companies, about 350 employees work for me. It isn't about me being everywhere, though I generally end up on every set at some point or another and sometimes multiple days on the set. But then I have very competent people around me, and I think that you are no greater than the people you put around you. You see Jesus spending more time with the 12 than he did with the 5,000. If you can find the people who really have the skill set that make it possible for you to fulfill a dream that should be bigger than you. If you can fulfill your own dream by yourself, your dream is much too small because the dream is designed to be beyond you so that you can be inclusive of other great people. I don't think you're really great until you can be around great people and not be intimidated by their greatness. As long as you must be the king of the room you're in and everybody must bow when you walk in, it's only a sign that you're very small because truly great men can surround themselves with great people and not be intimidated because you know who you are. A lot of us are troubled by the fact that we never talk to anybody that doesn't think like us, dress like us, vote like us, and feel like us. And our perspectives are narrow because we have asphyxiated our dreams because we have only limited them to a tribal perspective when we have a global God. More recently, you started international business ventures. This list is just broadening of how much stuff you're leading. I want to get to a very practical leadership question here. So do you spend like Mondays thinking about one venture, Tuesday, the next venture, Wednesday, or do you sort of juggle all of these throughout every single day and keep track of it that way? This is what I realized. At the end of every day, I will never get finished to everything I needed to do. If I did great with the business, I missed a father moment. If I did great with the kids, I missed a husband moment. If I did great with the wife, I miss a pastoral moment. There's always something I'm going to miss every day. The art of being able to manage many things is never let it be the same thing twice. When you start missing too many moments in the same area, that area will begin to deplete. Okay, so maybe I didn't do the husband thing as well on Monday, but I got it on Tuesday, and it is about juggling touching everything but holding nothing too long. And if you have to hold it to have it, then you didn't hire the right people. Uh-huh. You should have to touch it, but you shouldn't have to hold it. If I have to hold it to keep it going, then I have the wrong people in place. I can tell because I've, we've known each other for so long that God seems to be increasing your capacity. And without asking you to divulge more than you want to, we were together backstage one time after a speaking engagement, and it was one of the first times that I've ever heard a major speaker, someone of your caliber, apologize for a talk, Mm -hmm. and you pulled me off to the side and you said, that wasn't my best, I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And we had about a 90-minute conversation about exhaustion. So what happened there Bishop, did you juggle some things that got dropped? Did some people let you down who were major team members for you? Mm-hmm. Because it's not typical for you to be in that spirit. No, it's what not. What happened there, and how did you dig out of it? Anytime you take on new things, it takes you a while to learn how to manage it. 
And that incubation period is a process where you're going to be overwhelmed. And you caught me in one of those times where I'd taken on a new project, sometimes underestimating how much it costs you to deliver it. Yeah. And, and you're going to be depleted and exhausted. And that's okay. Jesus got tired. Everybody gets tired. But you don't want to stay tired. You want to figure it out. Because whenever something is overwhelming to me, it is always a sign that I need to restructure. It means that my structure is deficient for the weight load that I'm carrying. It doesn't mean that I can't do it, but it means that I have to restructure in order to be able to do it. Restructure may be more staff. It may be a higher level of staff. And here's something. Here's something that I think is important for every leader. It is not where we want to go that is the biggest problem for us to figure out. The biggest problem is what are you willing to leave behind in order to get there? You see? And those tough choices of what do I need to let go in order to be available for what he is giving me today. One of the things that the Lord taught the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness is that he will not let you save bread. And a lot of times we're trying to save bread. And there are pastors and leaders that are listening to us as right now who are worn out trying to save bread that was meant to spoil. The worms are there. God did not mean for you to save what was yesterday's vision. You have to have the grace to let it go so that you are available to receive. Give us this day our daily bread. How can I give you this day's bread when you're busy trying to hold on to yesterday's bread? So he let the worms stop you from being able to hold on to your own vision. And a lot of pastors have difficulty and leaders with that because they feel like if yesterday's bread goes bad, it means I failed. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the worms are a blessing. Bishop, when we had a conversation a while back that you were contemplating starting a national daily television talk show. Yep. I had wondered if you had lost your mind, and I believe I asked you that, and yet you have some very strong feelings about the potential of what a show like this could mean. So could you explain the vision behind a daily national television show? Well, listen, I think my wife might have thought I lost my mind too, you know, so if I can convince her, I can convince you. (laughs) The thing about it was this, I had been a guest on Dr. Phil's show many times, and found out that in the process of being a guest on his show that I fed a hunger and a need for people who really weren't able to get what they needed. For church people, it's different. It's easy. You're experienced to it. But there are a lot of people who don't go to church who are starving for what we have become accustomed to, for what we sit on the side of the bed deciding whether we're going to go or not. They're hungry for it. And if we can bring it to them in a way that is palatable and not dressed in religiosity, they can eat it and receive it in an amazing way. For me, it was liberating to talk about a plethora of issues outside of just faith, about our world, about politics, about health, about race relationships, about parenting, just helping people with life skills as well as sharing your faith. And it's a tremendous opportunity at a time that we're facing terrorism, racial division, economic issues all over the country, institutions are crumbling, people are nervous and worried. And to be able to be there in their house every day, it's like Joseph being allowed to be in Egypt. God sent him over there and he created an avenue that his brothers could come. I think that I could be a conduit where faith can go mainstream. Jesus did more just walking the streets. He went out there with worldly people. He touched people who were hurting. He went into places that that I can't go 
but television can. And I want the body of Christ to pray for me and support it and be a part of it. Every time I've heard you preach, my soul winds up lifted <laughs> and not pressed down. Right. And as I was praying for you the other day, because I knew you were in negotiations about this, I thought, who better in these days to lift the souls, to ennoble the human spirit in our current society than you? That's and so I'm, I'm on your side. Thank you. And we'll pray and hopefully do my part to hope you succeed at this. About 15 years ago, you and I both got invited to a meeting where we spent the better part of a day with some pretty high officials trying to figure out how to bring about racial reconciliation once and for all, remember that? Right, right, we were gonna fix it. We were gonna fix it that yep. day. Then I think of where we are 15 years later, and it feels in some ways, not in every way, but it feels like in some ways it's worse. Mm -hmm. What part of the racial reconciliation mission or responsibility do you feel, do you carry, do you sense in your spirit as you're leading all of these ventures in the United States and all around the world. What's your part in the racial reconciliation puzzle? Wow, that's a big deal. It makes me wonder how much time do you have? <laughs> Let me start with this. The reason we physically get a fever is that the body is telling us that something is wrong. The reason we have pain as much as it hurts, it's a gift that causes us to draw attention to an area that we would not know that there was a problem. As horrendous and as atrocious as the issues are that are surfacing in our country right now, in some ways they are a blessing, like pain, like swelling, like a fever. It is drawing our attention to things that we drive by without notice. Communities that we don't see because we don't live in issues that we don't feel because we don't know those people. And eventually, anything you ignore long enough, a problem that you ignore long enough, will show up in a symptom that hurts you so that it can help you. America is being forced into a conversation that we should have had years ago. And the conversation is a lot more complex than do black people like white people, do white people like black people, do brown people like white people. It's bigger than that. We have, through a series of issues that are race-related and not race-related, created pockets of infection through which people are trapped in and they cannot escape. Systemic racism isn't about whether you lack the color of somebody or not. It is whether you have included them in the strategy for success, yeah. okay? Yeah. A lot of people have been left out of the strategy for success that is poor whites, underserved blacks, and underserved browns, and they are erupting in passionate pain in a way that we can no longer ignore because we had a strategy for us but we didn't include them in the strategy of possibilities. Our American dream has become their American nightmare. And it's not just about color, that we do have a racial problem in this country. And we probably always will to a degree. But the reason we have the swelling is that when people can't eat and they can't get a job and they can't get opportunities, they swell to the point that they can no longer be ignored. Women did it. Slavery caused it. 
throughout history, we've had moments of swelling and pain in order to get the attention of the country that this is something that will not be ignored. I want to deal with things like criminal justice because a lot of people look at it and say, well, you're an African-American, you're doing well, Oprah Winfrey's doing well, Sidney Poitier's doing well, we got a whole list of people. That proves that America is a land of possibility. It does not prove that. What it proves is we didn't fall into the pothole of a criminal justice system for years and years. Both Democrats and Republicans got elected by bragging on how tough they were going to be on crime. And the toughness really was tough on people who couldn't afford rich lawyers. So anybody who couldn't afford a rich lawyer, the stats show that blacks don't commit any more crimes than whites, but they're seven times more likely to be incarcerated when they do commit the crime. Why is it because of racism? Some would say yes, and in some cases it may be. In other cases, it may be that they couldn't afford lawyers, couldn't afford attorneys. Uh, They don't go to the country club with the judge. The lawyer doesn't sit on the road beside them or behind them. They can't pick up the phone and call the person at the bank because they don't look like them. They don't know them. Those kinds of things become reprehensible when somebody did the same kinds of mistakes that the people listening at me right now did at some point in their life and got away with it and got to rebuild their lives. But in our communities, they went to jail, got out of jail, and couldn't vote in many areas. Can't get an apartment because you're an ex-convict. Can't get a job because you're ex-convict. And then there's somebody standing in a nice suburban neighborhood saying, this is America, why don't you get up on your feet? Well, I could get up on my feet if you didn't cut off my legs. You wouldn't feel that infection if you're not that person. The swelling that we're having right now is indicative that we have left people behind who refuse to be ignored. It's deeper than do I like black people, do I like white people. That's not the problem. The problem is we have not included a strategy that causes the underserved to be empowered. And it's not just America. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, you travel as much as I do internationally. We see ethnic differences, cruelty, hatred in pockets all around the world. And it just reminds me of the scriptures that define our true inner condition without the love of God at work in our lives. I mean, we we are tempted to dislike differentness. We are tempted to distrust someone from a different culture. We see it all over the world. And again, you have so much influence when you travel internationally. How do you address the ethnic differences and the conflicts that are going on in other places of the world? You know, I'm worried because I see it absolutely everywhere. It's spreading like an epidemic. We're seeing the kinds of wars now that we don't have a strategy to win because it's not country against country. You can't just put sanctions on them. And if we don't stop and come up with a comprehensive plan worldwide, that attacks things like hunger, like poverty, like disease. In a real concerted strategy, we're gonna continue to see that swelling I was talking about. Those fevers are going to come out in terms of shootings and killings and murders until we see anarchy like we've never seen before. Anarchy erupts because somebody in power forgot somebody who wasn't. That's the state of our country, it's the state of our world. We need to come out of denial and come out of our comfort zone and recognize if your knee is swelling, it's telling you something. The whole issue that Jesus asked the Pharisees, I believe, he says, who is my neighbor? Okay, 
Jesus told them, love your neighbor, and they responded to Jesus, who is my yeah. neighbor? It was an attempt to excuse themselves yeah, sure. for not seeing about people. Who is my neighbor? Yeah. I don't know who my neighbor is, Jesus. I don't know who yeah. my neighbor is. And he goes into this story about the Samaritan, and it, he goes out of his way to show that the person who brought the help didn't look like the person who was on the ground. And it's natural to help people who look like you or help your cousin, your daughter, your child. That's just natural. But until you can see somebody get off of their beast and climb down and help somebody that you have nothing to gain from and they don't look anything like you at all, not only will that person bleed and not be who they could be, the person on the beast won't either. Because when you start to recognize the brotherhood of men, then you fulfill the promise of God and then God will open up the windows of heaven and bless you like you've never been blessed before. Bishop, is this worldwide problem fixable without faith? I don't think so. I don't think it's fixable without faith. And yet I feel kind of funny saying that because in reality, the church has done the worst job mm. of recognizing brotherhood. Martin Luther King said the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday is the most segregated hour in our country. And 50 years later, it still is. And yet we have the faith. So faith without works is dead being alone. We have the faith, but not the works. We need a strategy. You have to be intentional about love. You know, you can't just say, if it's meant to happen, it's going to happen to me. You have to be intentional about tearing down the natural propensity that exists within all humans to remain comfortable. When we were talking recently, you said you were really fired up about a new writing project that you're working on, yes. a new book that's coming out, it's called The Second Wind. Yes, sir. Tell us about that. Well, I'm passionate about it because of the purpose of the book. You know, not because it's a book, but because I'm really trying to fix some things that I see broken. A Second Wind is about reimagining yourself. It's about creating opportunities for yourself. It's about the notion of hiring yourself. It's about the notion of owning your own future and not waiting on somebody to come find you or rescue you or pull you out but it's about what made America great in the first place, for us to become creative again, not just consuming, to birth businesses in small scales, whether you're a mother at home and, and you can't get out because of the kids, but you want to be motivated to go after some economic empowerment so you can send your kids further than you got to go yourself, or whether you're in an underserved community or an ex-felon and you can't get a job and yet you accepted Christ, you're trying to build your life, Nobody will give you a second chance. A second win is very practical, pragmatic steps and tools that challenges our country to be entrepreneurial again. We were at our greatest when we were entrepreneurial because we were much more like God when we were creating. We were created by a creator to be creative. We were not created to just consume, 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 consume. And now we're consuming from everybody else's table and we've stopped to be the very first thing God told man to be was fruitful. Yeah. This is a clarion call back to being fruitful. Every man, every house, every family in some way. And not allowing yourself, even if you do have a job, to be so sold out to that job that you don't brand yourself and market yourself and create multiple streams of income so that we can get America back up on its feet again. And so it's not really 
the paper and the book that I'm excited about. It's the purpose and the plan and the strategy. If you give a person a strategy, it's better than giving them a check because if you give me a strategy, I can pull myself out. If you give me a check, I'm going to need another one in a couple of weeks. And so I'm talking about our country taking a second win. I'm talking about our families taking a second win. And I'm challenging churches to take a second win. That if you do church the way your fathers did church, you will miss what God is calling you to do. Joshua didn't do Moses. He didn't act like Moses. The freedom to take a second win and to go into another realm is what this book is all about. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining our conversation. This podcast was designed to give voice to others so that we can have appropriate conversations. This is T.D. Jakes. Thank you for listening. Thank you.